0: What a Savior. Well, thank you uh, to the session and the church and to God for this opportunity to uh, continue to hone uh, the gift that God has given, the gift of teaching for me. Tonight, um, I had a lot of things uh, going through my mind about what to share uh, with God's people. What pasture should we graze in? I even was soliciting counsel from the session, and um, I found it difficult um, as I bounced from Hebrews, the end of Hebrews 5 and 6, talking about milk and solid food, 2 Peter 2, uh, which talks about suffering, and also has a reference to Isaiah 53, On how by his wounds we are healed. Uh, But I could not escape, as if I were bound or pulled like a magnet back to uh, this thought um, that as a newly installed elder, I couldn't recall whether in Sunday school or up here if I had presented uh, the gospel as I see it. And so I just could not escape it. So I thought I would present that this evening. Um, And so, in my mind, you have uh, indicatives and imperatives. Uh, Indicatives are things that God has indicated. They are. They are a reality, whether we do it or not. And imperatives are things that God has commanded. I I think the scriptures have a lot of imperatives. We've gone through Jude recently. We're talking about the law. We're We're hearing from our pastors about how after we have received so great a salvation... Uh, there is work to do in which God has prepared beforehand. Uh, but from my mind, my mouth and my heart, I want you as one of your shepherds to hear first, the indicative, what is the gospel? And I know you've heard it, this, this church, uh, and our wonderful preachers, uh, preach it faithfully. Um, I also know that I'm, I'm preaching from Romans three, excuse me, exhorting from Romans three, three, I had to look back there, (laughs) habit. Um, and, uh. Pastor Trefskar will be there in five or six weeks. I I sought counsel on that as well and kind of landed on, it doesn't hurt to hear too much gospel. And so we'll hear it today and maybe lay kind of a foundation and then come back to it with Pastor Trefskar in the coming weeks, Lord willing. And so uh, with that introduction, um, please stand as we read Romans chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 21 and I'm going to read... To verse 26, Romans three twenty-one. but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Amen. Please pray with me. Father God, it is by your spirit that you would speak to your people from your word through sinners. Through the folly of preaching, you would let us balls of dirt, jars of clay, proclaim your word. We would ask tonight that both you would be with me, that your truth may be heard, and that you would be in the hearts of your people, that the words of my mouth and the meditations on all of our hearts may be acceptable in your sight, through the blood of the everlasting covenant of your Son, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I think it is wonderful providence that Pastor Trevskar has been plowing the field of our hearts with the law in Romans chapter 1 and the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and the hypocrisy that comes from religious people as they claim to be people of God yet don't do what God requires this wrath is springing up From a place of justice, a place of God being a just and righteous judge. And where is God's righteousness is the question. How does God display it? As we move fast forward, way forward in Romans, Paul labors in these first few chapters and then Labors in chapter 4, speaking of faith and the covenant with Abraham. In chapter 5, we are enemies. Chapter 6, so many things. We, we were born and raised and we slaves now to Christ and on and on. And then in chapter 12 is when we get to, after chapter 12, um, actually beginning right there in chapter 12, we get an imperative. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable worship. What is Paul's motive? The mercies of God is what should motivate us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, to repent. And so tonight, I would like to look at the mercies of God as it's displayed through his righteous Manifestation. The mercy of God is to say that God has not given me what I deserve. Mercy is defined as not getting what you deserve. Grace is defined as getting something you did not earn or an undeserved favor or merit. Paul understood this, the author of the text we're in tonight, when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, But by the grace of God, I am what I am our minds should say the same thing. We are what we are, that is, loved by God, doing anything righteous, as a gift by the grace of God, which is a gift. He also said in 1 Timothy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The point here is that, as Pastor Trevskar is plowing, is to have us realize that we can never be as we face God as we should be. Unless we recognize what we are apart from God. And so Pastor Trevskar, as I say, is working and plowing with that. And so this righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What righteousness is that? What justice is that? The law and the prophets say that God... Is righteous. God is just. He will punish sin. Will not the judge of all the earth do right, as he said to Abraham overlooking Sodom and Gomorrah? His intent here, as I move to verse 23, and as we are going to learn, moving all the way through chapters 2 and 3 up to this point, is this conclusion whether it's a Jew or it's a Gentile or anybody else, which we've learned that's all people, is that all have sinned and fall short of honoring and glorifying God and giving thanks to him. We heard that in Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. They neither loved God nor gave thanks to him, but their foolish hearts became darkened. So as we're being taught In the mornings and the evenings from Pastor Trefskar, we're supposed to look at ourselves in the mirror of God's Word. And the question we should have is, how can a man be justified? How then can I be right with God? And in verse 24, we see the answer. The first part of 24, after saying, "'For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God,' We read and are justified by his grace as a gift. If you pay attention there, he says, by his grace as a gift. The definition of grace is undeserved favor or an undeserved gift. Now, when we're getting a present from somebody or a gift, usually... They're giving it to us not because we earned it, it was our due, but because they wanted to give us something out of love, not to get anything back. That's the difference between what we're due, which is the wrath of God, and condemnation, and a gift. But Paul here is being quite redundant, as he does in so many places. Justified by his grace, undeserved gift, as a gift, He gets excited, I think Paul does, about this stuff. He wants us to get excited too and never forget it. It's almost as if he's saying we are justified as a gift, as a free, free, undeserved gift, 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 gift. Nothing in us, whether you're a Gentile in Romans 1 or a Jew in Romans 2 who's a hypocrite and does not realize that God's patience is meant to lead us to forbearance, and by the way, in that, in that sense, uh, if you are a covenant child here, you would be in the category of a religious or covenant person. Or if you grew up in the church. If you're a Gentile from the streets, then you're in that category. But regardless, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified only as a free, free gift. There is no worthiness in us. Man, apart from the grace of God is unable to understand this or, moreover, accept it. If we did understand this... Excuse me. Sorry. Yes, so we must be brought to a crisis in order to desire this gift. We must see that we have sinned and want to know, how, how, Lord, can I then be justified... And he tells us here, it is as a gift. In Galatians 2, Paul does this again. And in our, our men's Saturday study, uh, we're going through here. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if we've, uh, get the head nod from Steve if we've got to this point yet. 2.16, uh, Paul says, and listen for the repetition here. It's almost as if he just can't get away from this, this and wants to drive it home. He says... Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works in the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times. Three times in that verse. A person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We've believed in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see that? Same thing he's doing in Romans 3. He wants us to get a clear understanding of what grace is. And for us who have the Spirit, who have understood this, this should not be a problem. It should be okay for anybody to stand in this pulpit or or for you to listen and they they should be able to talk about our sin and our wretchedness and our rebellion against God and what we deserve and Jesus should be made all the more precious to us because we know that none of what we are and what we do has any bearing on God's justification for us. It is God's free gift of grace through Jesus Christ. Now, justification really quick. Justified, the word does not mean that God made us righteous. Uh, That's a Roman Catholic doctrine, um, the infused uh, spirit and power and righteousness um, of God. But we believe in a gospel of of, um, imputation, where God imputes which is a big word for he counts it as righteous. He reckons it so. He considers it so. And so when, when we say that we're justified as, by his grace as a gift, what we're saying is that God has declared, let it be so. Let it be considered so. Let it be reckoned so. Let it be imputed to us. Justification, declared righteous. And how does he do this? It's not only that we've been forgiven from the wrath that we heard in in chapter 1 and the punishment that is deserved, but we've been declared actually holy and righteous. This is through what's called the active obedience of Christ. Christ, as we know, lived a perfect life, obeyed everything perfectly, and that perfection is then imputed, or declared, or reckoned, or counted in all of our steads, in our accounts, when God looks at us by faith in Jesus Christ. And this should bring about humility. And a a small aside here, I forgot to do this, Uh, for the sake of uh, danger of plagiarism, I want to say that most of this gospel, is where I first heard it, came from a, a... Baptist, a Reformed Baptist named Paul Washer. And, and this is the True Gospel series. And, and I recommend it. It's a six-part series to anybody. So that's the structure uh, of, of what I'm giving here. So one of the stories he tells in there is, is uh, about when he was a young teenager with his buddies in the farm fields and driving around uh, in their old farm trucks. But there was a rich kid from across the town who had this really nice car that his daddy bought him. And his old buddies would go up to that high school kid and say, your daddy bought you a nice car there, didn't he? And you'd see that pride just deflate out of that kid's uh, disposition. And the point he's making there is that it doesn't matter how precious the gift is. If, If it's a gift, there's no cause for boasting. But there's no cause for sorrow either. That kid's daddy loved him enough to give him that gift, and we want to remember that. And that's the difference this justification this justification this being declared righteous as a gift is a difference the dif- the difference between God's true religion and every other religion on the face of the earth there are only two religions the gift of God through Jesus Christ salvation by a gift and salvation by works If you ask a Muslim, why are you going to heaven? The Muslim will say, because I keep the Quran, because I do the pilgrimage, because I give alms, because I've been to Mecca. Therefore, God will reward me and give me my due. If you ask maybe a a, a traditional Jew or maybe... Someone of, of Eastern religion, they would say the same thing. Maybe a Buddhist would say, Well, I have shed myself of the fleshly things of the world, and I have gotten inwardly into the, the place of the spirit and, and at one with the universe, and I'm no longer um, bound to those things. And therefore, because of that, my, what I'm doing, I'm going to be caught up into the one spirit of it all. If you ask a Christian, Why are you going to heaven? Well, I was born in sin, born a sinner. I was also born a walker and a talker. And as I started to grow, I walked and I talked and I sinned because I was a walker and a talker and a sinner. And that's what I did. And I have forsaken my God. I have not given thanks to him. I have not paid attention to him. I have even... Rebelled against him and done things I know that are not right and been selfish, both against him and my fellow man. And then the interviewer says, I don't understand. You claim as one and boast as one who's going to heaven, but you describe yourself as such a vile person. And the true Christian, because he or she knows that their hope and their salvation is not in what they do, it is solely As a gift by the grace of God. So. The next part of verse 24. It's. It's said and known that Jews are afraid to to speak the name of God out of reverence. Maybe we should give pause as well on phrases like this through the redemption we probably shouldn't speak this way too much but I think it's important that we somehow try to peek inside of the mind of God as he has revealed it Parents, especially, I'd like you to listen to this. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who is the Son of God, what goes into the Father's mind? What goes through his mind when he hears this word or this phrase? Do you remember when you first saw your child? And the love. And all the love that you have for your child now. And we are sinners. If you being sinners can love. And give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven. That's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And this son never did anything wrong. They were in perfect. Perfect communion. And love. For all of eternity past. And it is through the redemption, the price that was paid to buy back sinners, to buy back you and I, to redeem something lost. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the price that was paid. I want to exhort you tonight to meditate on that word and i want to exhort myself to not talk so quickly about words that mean much you know satan's goal in postmodernism is that words wouldn't mean much eh, everybody that's your truth and that's my truth and to each his own and you can define whatever you want to define but nothing really has any absolute and concrete truth and meaning. We're we're, we're treading now into concepts, into things that happened and things that I, I believe are being portrayed visually in heaven in which angels long to peer into just to get a glimpse the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When angels opened their eyes for the first time when they were created What was the sight? Were they not looking into the face of God, into the face of Christ himself? The beauty of the Son? The reflection of the Father? It would take a mighty force within their wills, their personal wills, to pull them away. And this is the price that was paid. We are slaves, bought, rebels, befriended, naked, poor, paupers, enemies of God, and with what? I want you to picture, if you will, the type of old-time scales like uh, Lady Justice has with the blindfold, the scales, you put weights on either side. And I want you to picture the price that was paid. Take everything that is. All the galaxies, all the love, all the elation, all the pleasure, all the beauty, all the sunsets, all the joy of your wedding day of your first child being born, of your first kiss, of the most beautiful scenes in the world, and you put all of that on one side of the scale, and more, and all that is, and you put the sun on the other side, and the rest of it goes flinging off into eternity, because the value of the price that was paid to purchase us back... Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he did this of his own will. Out of submission to his father and out of love for us. Offered up his life. It is important. That we hear Romans 1 and Romans 2 and we hear that we are rebels and enemies of God apart from the grace of God. That is what we are. When we hear Romans 1 and Romans 2, we must see that that's not them. That is us. All of us. Both sides. Romans 1 and 2. That is what's in our hearts. The reason we must see it is because of the contrast. So we can appreciate. So we can say, by the mercies of God, these mercies, I now will offer up my life as a living sacrifice. Paul Washer says, where did the stars go? Or it might have been George Mueller. Where did the stars go? I know the curtains are closed. Are they there? They're there, but you cannot see them. We can't see them because there is no darkness to contrast their glory. And another analogy, when you go to buy that engagement ring and you go to the jeweler or any kind of shiny jewelry, they lay that out on a small, perfect black velvet, and that white diamond just shines with radiance and glory and looks ten times its size. It is the black background and contrast of what we are in Romans 1 and 2. And as he gets into 3, none is righteous, no, not one. Their throat is an open grave. I don't want to venom of asps under their lips. We must see ourselves this way in order to be motivated to say, well, then how can I be saved? And then we will find where we can find our only boast. Now, some people in maybe modern evangelicalism or liberalism might say, stop talking that way. You're only destroying your self-esteem. But what we ought to say is, I am a recipient of justification by grace as a gift. So my esteem is not in self. My esteem is in another And remember, this other. It says that is in Christ Jesus. So I want you to be comforted by this and encouraged. It's not so much of your power to hold on to Jesus, although we are exhorted and encouraged to do exactly that, to hold fast to the end and to conquer. And we should, and we are commanded to. But this redemption... This price is in Christ Jesus. And if it was for you, it's not so much that you know Jesus. Matthew 5, I believe, was read earlier. Lord, Lord, haven't we done many mighty works in your name and and done miracles in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. It's not so much that we know Jesus. It's that Jesus knows us. The analogy here is to go to the White House. When this sermon was preached, George Bush was in office, so I'll use that one. And if you go to the White House, uh, kids, George Bush was a president three or four uh, presidents ago or four or five. It's been a while now. Um, but we can go to the White House and say, I know George Bush. I know George Bush. Bush, Are we getting in? No. But if George Bush comes out and says, I know I see in a lot of your faces, insert the blank because it's you. Then you're coming in. So this redemption is that Jesus knows us. And yes, we should be encouraged by that. And we should be brought to a, la- a, a nothing of a hope in ourselves and say, oh, might I get in? Can I get in? If that is your heart, rejoice. Because redemption is found through this free gift we read earlier, come. Buy without money, drink. Now, we move to verse 25. This redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Don't pass over that word put forward. If you looked that up in the Greek, set forth displayed publicly for all to see. This Jesus, Peter says, whom you crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is God's doing. God is putting forward his son. Parents, once again, what does it say in Romans 5? Maybe sometimes, rarely, One might die for a good man, but for an enemy? And what about giving your child for a good man? That's really hard. I couldn't do it. But how about for an enemy who would turn around and spit in my face or your face and hate you and want to kill you and never pay attention to you or give thanks or honor you for who you are and anything you've done? Should we give our son for that? We can't escape this that God intentionally and publicly displayed his son as a propitiation. Now, that's your $5 word. Propitiation, really quickly, simply means wrath bearing sacrifice. A sacrifice to bear judgment, justice, wrath. And this is coming to solving the greatest problem of all of Scripture. If God is just and righteousness, remember back to verse 21, but now, now the righteousness of God, the justice of God, has been manifested. That's what we're talking about here. The greatest problem with the Scriptures truly is if God is just then he cannot simply just let us go. He cannot just forgive us. That's what the whole Bible's about. This covenant of redemption after Adam's fall is that God has a plan to show his redemptive covenantal love. Now, if you listen to fleshly, human, secular, unsaved people who have not received this gift and we would be the same in the same place if it were not for the grace of god they would say a good god would never throw anyone in hell that's not fair actually it is fair the bible's problem is that a good god a just god a righteous god cannot let criminals into a holy and righteous heaven that's not fair that's not good and that's not just That's the Bible's problem. Proverbs 17, verse 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Abomination is one of the strongest words in Scripture. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Now isn't that what we sing about? We've just got done singing singing about Jesus paid it all. We're going to sing, uh, Lord willing, and can it be that I should gain? It's in all of our songs that we were wicked, we were sinners, we were rebels, and God justified us. But that's an abomination. If God were to just let us go, it would be. But that's not what happened. He manifested his righteousness. Righteousness. His righteous justice must be satisfied. And if he just let us go, what would that look like? To use a human analogy, you have this vile criminal. Maybe we come home from work or come home to the house, and we catch the criminal in the act, and they've just committed the most heinous crime, terribly done terrible, the worst things. We have children here, so I won't be too descriptive. And we come upon it, and we capture the criminal, And take him to the police. And even the criminal confesses. But the judge goes before the judge, and the judge says, Well, I'm a loving judge, so I'm gonna let you go. If that were our children, our family, our loved ones, would we be okay with that? I would argue no. We would say that that judge is unjust, that judge is unrighteous, that judge is evil. If God is just, he cannot simply let us go. Imagine Satan. He rebelled. He sinned against God somehow, somewhere. What does he get? Justice. Straightforward justice. Without forgiveness, without a gift, without redemption. Have we ever thought about that? Does that bother us? Satan and his demons are angels, more splendid and glorious creatures than we are. God did not send them a savior, and he didn't have to send us one either. And what I mean is, the justice and righteousness of God would be perfectly fine if the Bible said something like this. Man was created, man sinned, God brought justice to man. Close the book. The righteousness and justice of God is perfectly fine. No problems there. But God is not only righteousness and justice. So, as we're looking at this word propitiation, we should be asking how can a just God forgive me who must die and receive justice? And so sometimes we hear God became a man, I might have said earlier, lives a perfect life according to the foreordained plan of God and was delivered up to be a sacrifice. But we need to see a little more than just the human aspect of Calvary. If I were to say it was just the nails in his hands, the spear in his side, that's not the extent of what this... Wrath-bearing sacrifice endured. That's not the price that was paid. Isaiah 53, hear these words. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, that is, Yahweh, the Father, has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering, here propitiation, for sin. What does the true cross of Christ look like? Not like this, if you could look at it spiritually. It is stained black and dripping with sin as the sin of all of us and every Christian that has ever lived is placed upon Jesus the guilt Jesus sweat blood in the garden of Gethsemane it couldn't have been just the nails and the spear and the suffering and the crown of thorns so many martyrs before have gone through more more than that I won't describe Blandina Fox's book of martyrs and the reformers who were burned at the stake and went there rejoicing and singing and looking forward to what was coming because they knew the reward and the glory and the end of the suffering that was coming their way. It couldn't be that Jesus was afraid of this cup that was simply just nails. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind, and despised by people. Steve read earlier, Elder Boyajian, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the imputed, declared, and one day realized, actual, risen, resurrected, sinless righteousness of God in heaven in the presence of the Lamb. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This word crush in the Hebrew uh, would be used for a millstone. And If you don't know what a millstone is, it's large stones and you put grain in between and then it's moved around and it grinds it to powder completely pulverizes it and that is the language that's used here this redemption this grace this gift what are we saved from some people say from my sin but remember sin was not after us sin is not a person sin is not something that has a conscience in fact sin was our friend. What we're saved from is God. God's righteous holy wrath. God Christ died on the cross to save us from his holy justice. This cup of wrath is what Jesus was sweating blood for, is what he's talking about in Psalm 22. Revelation 14, He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Have you ever thought about rest? I like to share this. You're being extremely tired after a long, long trip, and and you just want to get home and put your head on the pillow. And how wonderful that that rest is, that escape. It's it's it feels great. Imagine for all of eternity being as tired, infinitely tired, yet not being able to find rest, to close your eyes, to sleep. That alone would be enough of a torment to drive us mad. And that's what is said here about the cup of God's wrath. So I think, parents, if your children don't know, share with them the uh, story of Gethsemane and expound upon this cup of wrath And I encourage uh, all of us to read it now, but for the sake of time, you can find it in Mark 26 and Matthew 26. Excuse me, Mark 20, Matthew 26, sorry. I would also encourage us for the sake of time to look at the blood of the covenant. um, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This was necessary. And it's always been this way from Leviticus and Exodus and all the way up. John the the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's always been this propitiation coming. Now, Moving forward to verse 26. Jesus Christ, in this section, died for God. He manifested his righteousness in verse 21. We read, Whom God God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why was this done? Verse 26. Why was it done? This was done to show display, manifest God's righteousness. Well, why did he need to do it now? Because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over the former sins, the former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that, and so why is he doing all of this? So that he might be just or righteous His justice and righteousness might be manifested. He might be just and the justifier, the one who declares us righteous, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how God can love Noah, who got drunk right after the flood and didn't deserve and wasn't good beforehand. Abraham, who was a liar, and put his own wife In front of him to save himself. Israel. Enough said. How could God love them. David. Adulterer. Murderer. God's justice was never truly and fully displayed in the Old Testament. You have to go to the New Testament. To see God's righteousness and justice displayed. You have to go to a small hill outside the camp on Calvary. And there, there, you will see a spectacle before men and angels that will be worshipped and glorified and celebrated for all of eternity. Where God displayed publicly his son as a propitiation for sin. Imagine the sound in heaven at that hour. And now, as they worship it, you could hear a pin drop. This was something that angels and the host of heaven had never seen. The very creation shook, and the sky and the sun was dark. When this wonderful second person of the Trinity, the triune Son of God, suffered under the almighty wrath of God. I would submit to all of us, beloved, in our hearts that we need to live between two days. This is where our motivation comes from. This is by the mercies of God, I beseech you, I urge you, I beg you to offer your lives as a living sacrifice. And as we are offering our lives, live between That one day when our Savior hung on a tree bearing your and my sin and the day when we one day will be with him in glory and all of the sin will be removed and we will no longer have any tears or sickness and sadness because he will wipe them all away. And finally, as we close, as a Christian, as a true Christian. Whether we're dealing with unbelievers or with our fellow covenant flock, brothers, sisters, congregation, all the words. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God this gospel we we heard pastor ted preach in the beginning of romans this gospel that i have just proclaimed before you is the power of god unto salvation let us pray father god in the flesh we cannot see We cannot hear, we cannot know. So we beseech you, based on your promises, based on what you have done for your son, let your spirit resonate and dwell in us richly. Help us to catch a glimpse every day and every hour of this heavenly vision of the righteousness and justice that you have displayed, but also how holy and infinite and wonderful your love is for us that you would do this. Let our hearts be motivated by this mercy that you have done for us, that we might offer our lives as a living sacrifice. Then we might be the glory to the glory and the praise and the honor of Jesus who has done this thing. For it's in his name I pray. Amen.